Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Drive inland from Tekapo, and in under an hour, you'll hit a road like no other. It's just 55 k's long, but it follows our largest southern lake to our longest glacier and to our tallest mountain. Nearby is an immense hydroelectric power scheme with eight power stations and miles of canals, and it's carved into a unique high country desert. On the southern flank of the road is a towering mountain range, and at its western end is Auraki Mount Cook National Park. In summer, lupins paint the land a dazzling purple, but in winter, the intense cold freezes vehicles to the ground. All of this is underneath a night sky that's so filled with stars and galaxies, it's now recognised as an international dark sky reserve. And as Kiwis do, we call this piece of unfolding wonder by the prosaic name of State Highway 80, or unofficially, the Mount Cook Road. David Chamberlain, he used to call it his place of work. In the wintertime, just looking straight up the lake at Mount Cook, yeah, you wouldn't get any better than that. David built this road. He spent four years of his life on this job, living next to that lake, Lake Pukaki, with that view. But the view out of his window now would be very different. It'll be right underneath the dam at the moment. I'm Justin Gregory, this is Eyewitness, and this is the story of the Mount Cook Road and the lake that drowned a town. Geographically, the area around here is called the Mackenzie Basin. Politically, it's called the Mackenzie District. Traditionally, it's called Te Manahuna, and it's most commonly called, nowadays anyway, the Mackenzie Country. Naitahu came here for their mahinga kai, weka, tuna, and to be with their ancestor, Auraki, from whom they descend. Auraki brought his waka down from heaven to visit his mother, Papa Tuanuku, but when he tried to return, he made a mistake in his karakia, and the waka crashed to the earth, flipping over and becoming Te Waka or Auraki, the South Island. Auraki and his brothers climbed onto the hull and turned to stone, becoming the Southern Alps. In 1848, there was a dodgy bit of business called Kemp's Deed, and it meant a huge chunk of the South Island, including the Mackenzie Basin, or what would be called the Mackenzie Basin, was sold to the Crown. Seven years later, a Scot called James Mackenzie and his dog Friday may or may not have rustled sheep through here, but the Pakeha who farmed the land after him named it after him anyway. Tourism was getting going, including mountain climbing and tramping, and a shingle road was built to Mount Cook Village and the Hermitage Hotel. By the 1950s, there were thousands of people travelling that road every year. And it could be an exciting journey. Significant rivers and streams meant you had to concentrate more on the road than on the scenery, and you want to look at the scenery. That and the road was scheduled to be flooded as the level of Lake Pukaki was raised to feed the stations of the Waitaki Hydro Scheme, what we were talking about earlier. So taken all together by the early 1970s, an upgrade to the road was well overdue. Enter David Chamberlain. I actually didn't have a job title. I was just the boss. 
David grew up in Geraldine. It's a South Canterbury town about 150 k's to the east and was working in Timaru for the old Ministry of Works when his boss tapped him on the shoulder. I had been working for the Timaru residency of the Ministry of Works and, and Development for some years, but 1970, I was on a working holiday, holiday over in Australia. Um, spent six months of that up at the Ord River Dam construction up in the Kimberleys, which was fantastic. Then on return to uh, Timaru, I was asked to look after the reconstruction of State Highway 80, which I sort of jumped at, really. So that winter, he was off to the Mackenzie country. He was 26 years old and in charge of a multi-million dollar rebuild. Work had already begun at the eastern end and they were working their way inwards, westwards, towards the village. There was pressure to get the job done before the lake level went up, of course. But there was also pressure because you don't want to spoil those views. It is one of the New Zealand's iconic tourist routes. So it's sort of pretty vital that what we did didn't impact too much on the landscape. And I think now when you drive on it, you feel that the road blends into the landscape. Every working day at 8am, David would meet with his overseers and talk about the job for the day. Then he'd spend most of his day travelling between the work sites, followed by a bit of paperwork in the afternoons. Now, this new road was planned to a very high standard and it would cost a lot, but it had to be done right because there were two big challenges here. Many, many heavy tourist buses, as well as private cars, would be wearing the road down every day of the year. And the other big challenge was the climate, because we're talking about the high country here, the Southern Alps. It's hot in summer, really hot, but in winter it snows. It snows a lot, it rains a bit, and the near-permanent frost over the wintertime means the temperature goes well below zero most winter nights and doesn't get much warmer during the day. Now that means a thing called frost heave, which is the bane of a roading engineer's life. A succession of frosts um, develops a lens of ice under if any moisture can come up by capillary action, and then that just gets bigger and bigger every, with every frosty night. And then ultimately when it thaws out, you're going to end up with a, cot- a pothole or, or something worse. Part of the design was 18 inches of free-draining uh, gravel, free-draining metal, and then that's resulted in 18 inches of jolly sound road foundation. Killed two birds with front stone, really. David remembers driving through freezing fog with an iced-over windscreen, and the only way he could see out was by warming the glass with his hand. That was all you could do. Um, just hold your hand on the windscreen and melt that patch, and then move it along and melt that patch. You had two patches then, but the first patch would start to freeze over. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I remember on one occasion we were um, on a long straight. It was snowing like anything. And we got to the end of the long straight and I went to go around the corner. I couldn't turn the steering wheel. And snow had built up uh, in the mudguards by the front wheels and then it had turned to ice and the front wheels were jammed straight ahead. <laughs> it was a hell of a job digging the jolly stuff out too. It wasn't very warm doing that, so we could actually go around the corner. I remember the overseer had a, a dozer that was to keep the ball hut road open. It was a wee shed away up there, up the Tasman. And um, that dozer would actually freeze to the ground. So they'd have to put um, diesel or petrol on, on the tracks and melt the, <laughs> melt the thing to get it to move. When you say um, melt it, they'd light it on fire. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
But the weather didn't stop the work, and the road began to make progress, out past the Mackenzie Basin, alongside the Ben Orho Range, following the lake, stopping only at the rivers. And don't forget the fords, too. <laughs> the fords. Tell me about the fords. <laughs> um, I remember Jack's Creek, one of our workmen had trouble in there. Um, he got bogged one night, um, left his car running to keep warm, and uh, I think it was a district nurse coming down really early the next morning, thank goodness, from um, from the Hermitage, found the car and the guy sitting in it, um, she reckoned all she could see was the whites of his eyes. <laughs> so, He'd nearly gassed himself. through the floor, yeah. But the Fords and the Rivers, they were someone else's problem. Uh, yes, yeah, my name's uh, Murray Riley. Yeah, I was um, supervising all the, uh, the the bridge construction on the on the new road up to Mount Cook. How many bridges are we talking about here? Um, there was uh, there was five altogether, a mix of steel and concrete piles. Four of the bridges had um, the beams were uh, pre-stressed concrete beams about uh, 18, 20 metres long, uh, typically three span. The, the biggest bridge was our Boundary Stream Bridge, which was the first one you come to, which was actually quite uh, quite high when we built it. The piers were about 20 metres high. Like David, Murray's major obstacle was the weather, and the frozen ground he was working on didn't help either. Ground was permanently frozen for about the first uh, eight inches to 12 inches below the ground level, so um, yeah, if you wanted to do any excavation or anything, you, you couldn't get an excavator there. The digger, the bucket would just sort of bounce off the ground, so it was essentially you had to you know, light, light a fire on top of the ground to thaw the ground out before you could start any excavation work. So uh, that, that, was, that was another... Another wee challenge. The, I guess the other challenge from uh, the bridge building point of view is uh, pouring the concrete during the winter. Um, you know, the temperatures being so low at night, and uh, we had to um, make sure the concrete didn't, didn't freeze before it set. Uh, the contractors had to sort of set up uh, diesel, diesel burners um, alongside the freshly poured concrete to make sure the ambient ke- temperature was uh, kept, kept above freezing. Um, so that was a bit of a challenge. That, uh, Got a bit too much for one of the bridges because one, one of the uh, diesel burners must have um, must have exploded during the night because we came back next day and all the, the formwork had been had been sort of burnt off all the piers because they were the form formwork was soaked in oil so it would have burnt pretty quick. We came back next day and you, all you could see was this uh, these pier columns there with um, blackened with white spots where some of the concrete had spooled off. You had to you had to knock that pier down and sort of start start again, really. And at the end of a cold, hard day, David, Murray and their crews, well, they went home to some fairly basic accommodation. I was actually in a 10 by 8 hut um, in the little village of Pukaki. Then I moved to, we got a, a three-bedroom house. That was really quite good. I used the house as an office as well. This was at what was called the investigation camp. David's little hut had no shower, but, you know, these are engineering types we're talking about. So he rigged up a washing machine in a nearby house to pump hot water into his hut. And uh, we were just across the road from the pub, which Max Smith stole and took down to Twizel, to our great sadness. <laughs> Hardly fair, was it? Max Smith was the near-legendary project engineer in charge of the Upper Waitaki Hydro Scheme, and he was a man known for doing things his own way. A bit later on, David Chamberlain later moved to a temporary settlement further up the lake called The Rest. Housing there was better, but we're still not talking about insulation or anything like that. (laughs) We didn't know what insulation was, I don't think. We just um, dressed accordingly. But if the houses were cold, the social life was warm. 
the Ministry Works overseer that uh, did the normal maintenance on the road. He, uh, uh, we used to he used to run a, a sort of wet a wet canteen um, where we could uh, all have a have a have a beer after work sort of thing. Um, I think the police probably turned a, a blind eye to it because it was certainly better than us, you know, driving um, three quarters of an hour up to the Hermitage or an, an hour or half an hour down to down to Twizel. Um, so it was good that we had we had that and. Um, Every 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 week we used to one night a week we used to have a bit of a competition with the contract the ministry works best the contractors and uh, and darts and pool we had a small pool table in there we used to have a weekly um, evening of uh, playing 500 and we used to have a few pontoon evenings as well. Sunday night saw a session at the wet canteen known as late mass, but that was mostly the younger men. And later on there were winter cabarets at the Glencoe Inn. And not all of the entertainment there was indoors. Being a remote area, a lot of our guys on um, on days off would go hunting or climbing. Yeah, it was, it's really quite different from city life. We're only talking about 100 or so people overall, not all of them workers because there were families there too. It was a different kind of life for everyone, remote but not lonely. It's hard to describe just a, a small community how you get to know other people. Um, other people get to know you. You don't have any secrets, really. Um, you know, if you see a car coming past, you know whose it is, and um, you know what time the bus comes up every day. And yeah. And it wasn't a life that was ever meant to last. Murray moved on in 1974, and David went to the Manapuri project before the road was finished. But by 1976, all the work was done, the level of Lake Pukaki was raised by nearly 40 metres, and a large part of the old gravel road, as well as the accommodation at the rest where David, Murray and their crews had lived, well, that disappeared under the water of the lake forever. Both men are retired now. David Chamberlain lives in Waimati in South Canterbury, Murray Riley's in Wellington. They worked together again on the 40th anniversary reunion in 2013. It was a good turnout and all the former workers drove the road again to admire their work and to enjoy their memories. Thanks for listening to this episode of Eyewitness. I'm your host, Justin Gregory. The engineer was Ari van der Poel. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. If you'd like to listen to more from the series, you can head to rnz.co.nz forward slash eyewitness or wherever you get your podcasts. Ma te wa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.